Amazing Grace Kona welcomes you to today's lesson from Pastor Izzy Manzo. Our prayer is that today's lesson will spiritually feed and uplift you. Now, here's Pastor Izzy. We're in Jude, continuing our study, and we got through the port in verse 10, where Jude says, I was going to write to you about these wonderful things of our salvation, but there's some real crummy guys that have crept in. They're like the guys that did the error of Cain. They want to come to God by a different offering, not the offering God requires of his son. They come up with other stuff and they weave that into their message. And then they rush headlong just for pay into the error of Balaam. That's where we had to end last week. We're going to go on and we're going to look at where Jude says, and they also follow in one more error and they perished in the rebellion of Korah. You might remember that the story of Korah found in the book of Numbers, chapter 16. This is a bunch of men that were leaders, prominent men in the nation of Israel already. And they were already being used in a godly way. They were already in his service. Well, I'll just read you the beginning of Numbers, chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, the son of Dathan, the son of Abram, the son of Eliab, on, and the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took action. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation chosen in the assembly. These aren't schmucks. These are the chosen leaders in the assembly. Men of renown. And it says they rose up against Moses and Aaron. And they went, you've gone too far. You guys act like you're the only ones. You exalt yourselves above everyone else. We're just as good as you are. I'm just paraphrasing to get us quickly through this portion. But basically, Moses then says to Korah in verse 8, Hear now, you sons of Levi. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation? to minister to them, and that he has brought you near, Korah, and your brothers, you sons of Levi, with you, and now are you seeking for the priesthood also? You already get to do the work of the Lord. This is why this hurts me, to tell you this story, is you got 250 men already, we would call them, already serving the Lord. But what's their beef? They don't get to be Aaron, the high priest. You ever run into these guys in churches? There are these guys that just are not in the ministry for the right purpose. And these men, unfortunately, 250 men of renown, stood up against Moses and Aaron. And the story goes on. They basically challenge Moses and say, you're lording over us. And, and Moses became so angry, he told the Lord, don't have any regard for their offering. He says, I haven't taken a single thing and not a single donkey or anything from them. These guys act like they made me, but it was the Lord that made Moses who he was. Moses told him, each of you come, take your fire pan and put incense on it and bring your censer before the Lord and 250 fire pans also. And you also, Aaron, shall bring each his fire pan. And so each one took his own censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it. And they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting. The Lord told Moses, guys, let's just let the Lord settle this. Let's all bring our offerings before the Lord. Whichever offering he accepts 
That's his choice. Then Korah assembled the congregation against them at verse 19 of number 16 at the doorway of the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, separate yourselves from this congregation that I might consume them instantly. But they fell on their faces and said, O God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? And then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation, get back from around the dwellings of Korah and Dathan and Abram. And then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Abram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in their sin. So they got back from the dwellings of Korah and Dathan and Abram. And Dathan and Abram came out and stood at the doorways of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. And Moses said to them, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds. For this is not my doing. You know, Moses wasn't going, look, I picked this job. God picked me for the job. I didn't really want the job. Some people don't realize this. Moses wasn't really a, what you call one of those willing guys to go into the ministry, was he? Oh, God, I can't speak real well. I got a little stutter here. Get someone else. He goes, nope. I'll tell you what. I'll be God to you. You speak to your brother Aaron. Aaron will speak to the people. You're still the man for the job. You don't get out of the job. Moses goes, look, this is not my doing. Now, if these men, I love this, verse 29. This took some nerve. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But. If the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them alive with all that is theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. Any of you want to volunteer to be Moses on this day? He's like, look, I didn't pick this job, but just to let you know, if these guys die like any regular man, God didn't send me. But if God makes an entirely new thing that the earth opens up its mouth, swallows them alive in the shoal and closes up over them, then you guys know God picked me for the job. I wish I could use this on some of these false guys. This would be a great way to get rid of a few false preachers. It says, and when he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. The earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them and all their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions so that all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol. The earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry, for they said, the earth may swallow us up. And fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he shall take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze, for they are holy, and you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for plating for the altar. Since they did present them before the Lord, they are holy, and they shall be a sign to the sons of Israel. So Eleazar, the priest, took the bronze censers, which the men who were burned had offered, and hammered them out as plating for the altar, as a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn the incense before the Lord, so that he will not become like Korah and his company, 
just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. The reason this story bums me out is because you have 250 guys that were already in the ministry. They just weren't doing the high priest job. And because they had ambition to be something more than what God had called them to be, we would call it jealousy. They're jealous that that other guy gets to do it and they don't get to. Well, their jealousy costs them. What's interesting to me, the story actually tells us that the jealousy was spurned by three fellows. Those three original guys that got together to stir the pot, so to speak. And isn't it amazing how quick men can rally other men to join them in their coup? Do you think this ever happens in churches where they have church coups? Does this stuff still go on? Sure. My heart breaks to teach you this story is because I do see that these very things that Jude warned about are still going on today. And the very motives of men's heart, there is nothing new under the sun. They're doing the same stinking sin that was going on back then. You got men that are doing ministry for the wrong motives. They're caring only for themselves. They won't offer to God what God requires as an acceptable offering. They go after pay to do the work of the ministry and they go after the head guy's job just because they want the position. Not they want to be used where God tells them to be. You know, it's really interesting to me. I find if you interview most ministers that have been serving the Lord faithfully in their ministries and you ask him, so how'd you come into this? Was this always your life and mission? They're like, no. In fact, I would tell you, the majority of them will tell you, I never would have imagined me ever being here. Well, what happened? God just told me I'm going to use you. I joke because the guys that seem to be used the most in the work of the Lord are the ones you can see that have been drugged there by the heel marks as the Lord drugged them into the position. It's like Moses, the Lord, you're going in. I don't want to go. You're going. I don't want Jonah, go preach to the Ninevites. I don't want to go. Okay, well, you can go for a ride in the belly of a fish, but you're going to go. It's funny how the Lord will work with the men he chooses to do his work, even though the guy doesn't want to do what God's telling him to do. But there are those that want the position up front for the wrong reason. Just like these guys, Korah, who incited a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. We could be the high priest. Why does he get to be the high priest? We should be up front. We should be in the one giving the offer. God didn't pick you. If he didn't pick you, you should say, praise God. Let me tell you what, when you're picked to be the guy up front, what does the scripture say? If you strike down the shepherd, what happens to the sheep? They scatter. So where's the crosshairs focused in the enemy's artillery? At the guys on the side of the shepherd? No, right to the shepherd. And the enemy does this over and over. Nothing new. If he can tear down the integrity of that minister, how many ministries have been torn apart because, oh, that pastor, did you hear? He fell into sin with this person, or he did this, or he stole all the money in the church. It's nothing new. The devil's the father of all lies. And you know what's funny? Christians don't even care if it's true. They go, well, I heard it. Jude, verse 12, he said, Hidden reefs in your love feast, they feast with you without fear, and they are caring for themselves. They only care about themselves. They are clouds, he says, without water. They are carried along by winds. They are autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, 
wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam and wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, the purpose was to help the people who didn't have. You know, there were some that were poor and this was their big meal of the week. And yet there was those that had big appetites. Paul says, you guys should just eat at home before you even come. Because you come together with the auspices of, well, we're coming to share food, but you're really gluttons and you're eating it all up and the poor guys aren't getting anything. And this is supposed to be to celebrate the Lord's Supper where we take communion and you guys are disgracing it because you're making the poor guys go hungry and you're eating all the goodies. The idea that they had love feasts is nothing new. It's one of the functions in the DNA of churches all around the globe, the coming together to partake of meals together. When I went to Bible school, we had a pastor that worked with Pastor Chuck Smith. His right-hand man was a guy named Romaine. When he described the work of the ministry, he said, let me tell you something that all ministers, true ministers of the Lord, should pattern their ministry after these words of Jesus to Peter. And so he took us to the end of the Gospel of John and he said, Peter, do you love me? Oh Lord, you know I love you. Then feed my sheep. Now I'm not going to go into uses different words in the Greek, talking about different depths of love, but Jesus meets Peter where Peter's at. Three times he asks him, do you love me? And each time that Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, well then tend my sheep, feed them, tend them, look after them, be a, a shepherd to the sheep. In other words, protect the sheep and feed them, give them what they need. And so Peter received these instructions from Jesus. Now, a good shepherd is there to tend and look after the flock. And he gave little examples. He said, a true shepherd makes sure that the sheep are fed and that they're cared for. He leads them to good pasture. He protects them from wolves. But are there false shepherds? Did even Jesus warn us that there would be these false shepherds? Watch out. This is something that in the New Testament is taught to us. But people, if I say, how do you tell the difference between a true shepherd and a false shepherd? How do you spot them? Pastor Romaine says, a true shepherd doesn't go to the sheep and then say, I'm here to shear the sheep so I can get their wool. Like I get the benefit of their wool. I'll just shear them all. And he says, in some of these false teachers, they shear those poor little sheep down to the nubs. Every little bit of wool, let me get it all. And it all goes to me, me, me. They all want it for themselves. And instead of it being Jehovah Jireh, God who provides, the Lord God who provides for us, they call it sheep Jireh. This is the difference between a true shepherd and a false shepherd. A true shepherd looks to God for his provision. A false shepherd looks to his sheep to take care of him. And you'll see this in certain ministries. You might even have been exposed to some of them in your Christian journey where the guy up front is always employ everybody give money so I can stay doing the work that here you know I got to have a Mercedes or whatever it is my latest thing and I need this to serve God so could we take up an offering is that what we're supposed to do I mean really is that the work of the ministry everybody give me your money so that I I I it's all about me Jew would say I gotta warn you about these guys they only care for themselves if you see that in the shepherd a caring not for the flock but only for himself that should be red alert right there. Red alert number one. Don't ever get deluded. If you really feel called to ministry, stay humble. We sang the song, 
from Micah 6.8, He has shown thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of thee? What are the three things he requires? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. If you're going to think you get to be in the ministry because you're such hot stuff and God needed you on the team, you're not walking humbly. Pride goes before the fool. You don't want to go there. You'll go down on your face. You get your nose too high in the air, you don't got any vision of the ground. The enemy goes, great, I love it when these guys get stuck up. Because all he's got to do is put a branch in the road. You ain't going to see it. You're going to trip right over and go down. He'll dig a pit right in front of you. You'll go falling into it. He knows how to get men to fall because of pride. And that's what he did in the sin of Korah. He appealed to these men's pride. You're just as good as Aaron. Why does he get to be the high priest? Why does Eleazar, his son, get to do? Why does his family? You know, our families are chosen too. Aren't we all chosen? You know, we're all chosen, but God calls his callings according to his spirit. And he gets to make the call, not me. Tucked in. Now you go, this isn't fair. These bad guys are going to get away with it. It seems like they do a lot of damage. But they don't get away with it. Verse 13 says that these guys are like wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. They're wandering stars for whom black darkness has been reserved. And it was about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with his many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch by the way, this is not the Enoch that was the son of Cain. That would be only the second generation from Adam. Because Cain had a son named Enoch. They built a city. But in the next chapter of Genesis, you remember in chapter 5, I believe it is, where we get the lineage of Seth. After Cain killed Abel, Adam went in and had relations with Eve again and had a son named Seth. And Seth... In chapter 5, he winds up having a son named Enosh. Enosh has a son named Kenan. Kenan has a son named Mahalel. And Mahalel has a son named Jared. That's the sixth generation. And Jared has a son named Enoch. Now that Enoch, it tells us in Genesis 5, verse 24, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Enoch was the guy that we talk about in Bible school as an Old Testament picture of the rapture. He's the guy who pleased God, walked with God and pleased God, and the Hebrew says, and was no more. God took him, snatched him. Please me so much, you don't even have to die. That's literally what it means, I'm sorry, in the Hebrew, it's a taking away without death. In fact, it's why in Bible circles they go, will he be one of the two witnesses? Because doesn't it appoint it for a man to die once and then comes judgment? But Enoch didn't really die. He's taken away. And what about Isaiah? Isaiah was caught up, remember? So maybe the two prophets in Jerusalem in the last days. This is just speculation, by the way. This is men trying to figure out. Because we do know the two witnesses that will witness against Jerusalem in the last days that they're going to have the power and the might of God on them. And the power described is the power of these great prophets. And so maybe it's those two felt 
this is all conjecture. We don't know. But it's a possibility because we do know that those two witnesses, they do die. Their bodies lay in the streets of Jerusalem. Everyone has a big party because, oh, those prophets that caused us so much trouble calling down fire from heaven. They're finally gone. Yippee! And then after a couple of days, the Lord puts their heads back on and <laughs> they get taken away. But they do die. Okay, just so you know. So that's why some guys just conjecture. Maybe they're the guys because Enoch walked with God. But here, Jude says Enoch prophesied. Who did he prophesy about? The evil men who do these things. And God says he's going to bring with him many thousands of his holy ones. The Lord will come with many thousands. This is a Hebrew style saying. Because they don't have the word millions in Hebrew. They use thousands of thousands or tens of thousands. Ten thousand is actually the biggest number. They use an alphanumeric system. So 10,000 of 10,000 is how we say millions. Like more than you can count. Well, here comes the Lord with his many thousands of holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict the ungodly of their ungodly deeds which they have done in their ungodly way and all the harsh things which the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do people ever speak harsh things against God? And you think, is nothing going to happen? Well, I got news for you. Jude tells us the Lord will come and they'll be judged. Well, next week we're going to pick up with verse 16 and see some more characteristics about how do you spot these fellows. Because these guys are grumblers. They're fault finders. They follow after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly. They flatter people for the sake of gaining advantage. These are all clues. Next week I'll break those down for a few examples maybe for you from the scripture of guys that did this. And by the way, that's a thing that Romain taught us. He said, you know how you spot a wolf in sheep's clothing versus a true sheep? Because they both look like sheep from the outside. He said, but sheep eat grass and wolves eat sheep. You can tell the difference between which one's correct by what do they eat. And a false shepherd will bite and devour his own flock. A true shepherd leads his flock to the pasture to get fed. Amazing Grace Kona thanks you for listening to today's lesson. You can listen to today's lesson or any of the radio lessons on iTunes titled Celebrate the Lord or at our podcast site, CelebrateTheLord.org. And if your travels take you to Kailua Kona on the Big Island of Hawaii, come visit us. We meet Sunday mornings, 9 a.m. on the beach at the north end of the old Kona Airport. For more information on Amazing Grace Kona, go to our church website at AmazingGraceKona.com Amazing Grace Kona is the original Calvary Chapel Kona.